Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Andy Letcher, a senior lecturer in ecology and spirituality at Schumacher College. A writer, performer and scholar of religion, he actually began life as an ecologist, completing his DPhil in ecology at Oxford University. And after a spell as an environmental activist during the 90s, especially during the anti-Rhodes protests, he moved to the humanities, completing a PhD in the study of religion at King Alfred's College in Winchester. Andy is an expert on contemporary alternative spiritualities, especially modern paganism, neo-shamanism and psychedelic spiritualities. He's a writer who's known for his critical approach and is the author of Shroom, A Cultural History of the Magic Mushroom, and a range of academic papers on subjects as diverse as fairies, animism, folklore, bardism and druidry. He wrote the companion volume to the English Magical Tarot and is a folk musician who plays the English bagpipes and the Dark Age Lyre. And for 10 years, he also fronted a psych folk band called Telling the Bees. It's a really fascinating guy on so many levels, and I'm really delighted to share this conversation with you today. So Andy, thank you very much for joining me to have this conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so um, I'm going to kick off with uh, a big question and ask, with your experience and with your background and your current thoughts about the situation, where do you think we're headed as a species? Well, let's, uh, let's start with the big one, eh? Um, <laughs> I suppose the question is, am I optimistic about the future? Yeah. And... Um, not, not especially. Um, I, I think the problems we face are so huge, and and they were really set in train thirty years ago. So um, the climate emergency is happening because of what we were doing thirty years ago, and and it's happening. So I'm not quite sure where it's going to end up. My hope is that we will steer it away from a a hothouse earth, which would just be, you know, the end of civilization. Um, but it's um, it seems to me 50-50 whether we, whether we pull it off. And I'm now a parent. I have three young children. I was blessed with twins. Mm. Wasn't, wasn't planning oh. on having three. Um, and obviously, I'm, you know, I'm worried about what the future is going to look like for them. At the same time, I I do sort of hold out hope. We're such an extraordinary species, and we're so capable of amazing things um, that that something something of that will prevail. 
Um, but um, yeah, I think I think there's a, a shadow on the horizon, and I think it's going to be a bumpy ride. Mm. I wonder, with with this idea of civilization, when you when you talk about that, what do you conceive of that as being? So, if there's going to be a big change, what might human society look like? Um, what might yeah yeah? I don't even know how to phrase that. It's such a big question. Well. I mean, on the one hand, if we really get our act together, then, you know, we can carry on living in cities with a reasonably comfortable standard of living and technology and what have you. But if we don't get our act together, I mean, God only knows. I mean, um, you know, choose the apocalyptic scenario (laughs) of your favourite sci-fi movie. Um, You know, we could be hunter-gatherers. We could be... um, uh, living in very small-scale um, societies. Uh, I, who knows? Who knows? And do you think that we would be able to adapt? In some ways, I want to say backwards, as in backwards through time. So pre-agricultural era seems a little bit far back, but if we're talking about things like small communities and microgrids of food production and, and electricity, etc., do you think that people would be able to adapt quite readily to that sort of... Um, change? Well, I think it depends on the people, actually, mm. and, and everyone's different. I'm always, I'm always reminded of an image from the, um, the tsunami in East Asia. Um, was it in Christmas 2000? And that when, when video footage started to emerge from that, um, there was a shot of, of these people, and they had uh, handfuls of shopping, and they were walking to their cars in the car park. And you saw the the water just rushing towards them, and they were frozen to the spot. And you know, I'm sure they didn't make it. And you're screaming at the at the screen, going, "For God's sake, just run, run!" <laughs> well, yeah. they clearly weren't adaptable, right? And God knows that might be me, um, frozen like a rabbit in the headlights. But um, I mean, maybe this brings us onto the the topic we're, we're going to um, move on to, psychedelics. Mm. I think one of the things psychedelics do is they um, help us to appreciate novelty, um, both on a cognitive level uh, and on a cultural level and even a societal level. They allow us to open ourselves to new ideas and new possibilities. And I think that quality is going to be essential for what, whatever comes um it's the people who are willing to go okay we can't live like the way we we have been let's adapt they're the ones who are going to make it through um i don't know if you can teach that i mean i i live and work at a college where we assume you can um but maybe it comes down to personality Mm. but it's interesting because touching on the psychedelic aspect of of the research that's being done at the moment. I remember reading quite a few years ago now that people who have psychedelic experiences, even if it's just one, um, will often score higher for the trait of openness, personality traits, so openness to newness, to novelty, um, Mm -hmm. up to even, I think it was, they did the test six months, a year, and even 18 months after a single psilocybin dose. Um, And so I wonder if that's something that could actually create a greater resilience in people who perhaps are not um, naturally high-scoring and openness and whether people would be open enough to take that step. Right. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. And I think maybe one of the 
um, w- one of the most problematic aspects of humanity is this tendency, particularly as we get older, to become less open, less open to novelty and change. And, uh, you know, I'm starting to notice it in myself. I'm in my 50s now and my body is just starting to stiffen up and my mind definitely. And and that that tendency as we get older, I'm sure, <laughs> lies at, um, at the root of many of the problems we face. Mm. And, and if the science... Um, coming out right now about what psychedelics do to the brain is correct what it seems to be saying is that psychedelics put our brains literally in a state they were in when we were in infancy and and as i mentioned i have young children and they're so open and um can play with anything and anything mm. can become a game a, a cardboard box can become a, a boat <laughs> on the ocean or a spaceship or a <laughs> a cave or you name it they can do it but we lose that ability and mm. no it's a cardboard box and um you can't put it on the kitchen table because it's a cardboard box and <laughs> it belongs in the waste you know we become closed and we 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 lose that ability so if psychedelics genuinely do that and it looks like from the science that they do and certainly that's what the hippies have been saying for 40 50 years then then i think they have a, a a huge role in in helping us through the crises of climate collapse and um, all the concomitant social problems. Mm. It's interesting because I found that in the last, actually in the last year, in the last year, there's been a lot more mainstream coverage of um, psychedelic experience. And this has been a growing theme. But for instance, the hugely popular book by Michael Pollan called how to change your mm. mind and Paul Stamets work. He's um, a famous mycologist in the States who's just released this fantastic film called Fantastic Fungi. And it looks not only at the psychedelic aspect of certain types of mushrooms, but also um, how mush- the mushroom family can be used to help regenerate and um, stave off some of the worst impacts of pollution, for instance. Um, but I think there seems to be a readiness in people to speak about and hear about uh, the possibility of working with plant allies, if you want to call it that, um, that maybe mm. we'd lost for a while, because I think it sort of seems to come in cycles, perhaps. Um, yes, I mean, obviously, um, there was a sort of regressive moment in the in the mid sixties and early seventies where. Um, up to that point, there have been loads of scientific research. I mean, just thousands of papers written about LSD and psilocybin. And then that all stopped. And, mm. and psychedelia didn't go away. Um, but it was, it, was, um, it was always underground. And it was part of hippie culture and then rave culture. Um, and, and what this new... Um, it's not really a psychedelic renaissance, it's a, it's a renaissance in psychedelic research. What that's mm. done is give a legitimacy to psychedelics again. And people who would otherwise um, have, have walked away from psychedelics are now going, oh, hold on a minute, the scientists are saying they're okay. Mm. And, and a lot of the myths that the media put around about psychedelics, you know, 
make you mad or make you ill or damage your chromosomes or all, all this kind of nonsense um, have been dispelled. That's not to say there aren't risks um, involved with psychedelics and um, particularly if you suffer from any kind of mental health issues, not a good thing. Mm. Um, to do outside of a controlled environment. But, but a lot of those myths have now been dispelled and it's given people permission to talk about the subject mm. and to experiment. And I think one of the, one of the interesting things is now the, the baby boomers are just starting to talk about it because they, mm. they went quiet. And um, I, I'm a great advocate for psychedelic eldership that we need our elders, we need people to tell us uh, what they did, what they did wrong, what they got right, what they've learned, how it's changed their lives, how it's affected their creativity and their, their working lives and their relationships and their mental health. We need to know all this stuff and we, we need the baby boomers uh, to come out. <laughs> so I'm glad they are. I think also because I've had well, without going into too much detail, I guess, because I want to protect their privacy, but I've had various conversations in the last 15 years with family members about um, these sorts of topics. And I've found that in the last 15 years, I've come up against a lot of resistance or curiosity, but from a distance. And it seems that now there is a more of a willingness to kind of um, have a discussion about it. And I think exactly as you say, it is because one's able to point to the research and say, well, you know, if Imperial's doing this, if there are people at King Alfred's College in Winchester doing this, you know, there's, there's you can point towards people who, as you say, are quote unquote respectable, who are doing legitimate research in these areas. But I wonder, from your perspective um, in your work, looking into things like diverse subjects such as fairies and animism and folklore and Bardism and Druidry, um, what aspects do those more sometimes private practices, what, what aspects do they bring into the conversation? So outside of the scientific research, um, what role do they have to play in, in this new chapter? Right, great question. So um, because of what happened in the 60s, um, the scientific research now has to be um, whiter than white, um, utterly impeccable, um, utterly objective, um, mm. not at all interested in the subjective experience of taking psychedelics, um, uh, other than other than um, to see what um, benefit they might have for treating depression or obsessive compulsive disorder or anorexia mm. or any any of these kind of things and and of course for most people who are taking psychedelics who are doing it not because they're ill but because they want to enhance life in some way that would be to miss the point entirely that yes. um, the point is what they do to your experience and of course some of the experiences that people have are deeply challenging, if not threatening, to the predominant materialist view of the world that we have in the West. Yes. So people have experiences of the divine, of um, other than human beings, plant spirits, mushroom spirits, um, deities who talk to them. And, um, you know, we thought we'd consigned all that stuff to the um, dustbin of history. Mm. Um 
uh, certainly if Richard Dawkins is to be believed, you know, <laughs> religion is just a sort of aberration of evolution. And yet people are taking these substances and having extraordinary experiences which are profoundly meaningful and therefore they cannot be dismissed because they are affecting people's lives. I mean, let's just take one example um, that I was talking about um, at Breaking Convention, which is this whole question of nature connectedness. It's, it's mm. something of a, a kind of hip, hip phrase at the moment. Um, you speak to people, no matter what their background or where they're from, uh, who've taken mushrooms, who've taken psilocybin, and the story you hear back time and time again is, yeah, you need to take them in nature, or yes. they open my <laughs> eyes to the natural world, or they're like a babel fish to the vegetable kingdom, or um, <laughs> I, I, I beheld a tree, I, I had a conversation with my pot plant. These stories go on and on and on, and we have to take them seriously, and... And we have to um, judge people by how they then behave in the world. Mm. Um, and it does seem that these kind of experiences are leading people to leave, lead more ecologically inclined lives. Mm. Um, so I understand why science does it and why it has to do it. I suppose I take a more anthropological interest, which is that we have to take people's experiences seriously and that that deserves um academic scrutiny in it in its own right mm. it's interesting that you that you mentioned richard dawkins because i know he has a new book that's just come out and i was listening to an interview that he gave very recently i think with joe rogan on his podcast and joe rogan asks him the question he says well you know someone in your position who's intellectually curious and you say that you're rigorous have you actually experienced a psychedelic um setting or have you experienced taking mushrooms psychedelic mushrooms and um and he said no and I thought isn't that interesting that someone who actually he's had a big impact in my life someone who um has explored the religions of the world has not had a direct experience of one of the most primary generators of transcendent experience that people time and again have taken count of recounted to their friends to family etc it's extraordinary that he wouldn't want to experience something like that firsthand to then be able to dismiss out of hand or engage with perhaps more generatively um the topics that that arise when when people have these experiences i mean that's kind of just fascinating to me right and um there's a very famous um video of Richard Dawkins uh, on uh, the BBC show Horizon, it mm. must be about 15, 20 years old now, where um, someone tries to induce a mystical experience in him by um, stimulating <laughs> um, his temporal lobes with magnetic fields. And uh, Ah, yes, the God helmet. Yeah, the God helmet, you've seen it. So, I mean, he, it's obviously not a double-blind experiment, and it's very obvious that he's resolutely determined not to have any kind of mystical experience. Um, I mean, yes, I mean, one can speculate as as to what it is about his personality that's so resistant to the idea, but, I mean, it, it's just speculation. Um, he's a fabulous biologist, mm. I'll say that. He's a lousy scholar of religion, but... <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he has fascinating ideas. I just wish, like, 
I don't know. I I I kind of think if you're gonna if you're gonna diss the party, you have to show up to the party to be able to diss it properly. Otherwise, don't diss it so much. <laughs> well, right. And um, I mean, this was the uh, the viewpoint of the very early scientific researchers in the 1950s and 60s, which was that um, you had to have experienced this firsthand. Otherwise, you really couldn't comment. Um, and there's a there's a very famous. Um, uh, apocryphal quote attributed to Timothy Le- Timothy Leary, which I'm sure he never said, but it's a great quote anyway, which is that uh, LSD causes paranoia amongst people who've never taken it. <laughs> yeah, there's there's some truth in that, I, I think. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to ask you where you want to go next with this, because I have so many questions um, that I'd like to ask you, but I wonder what you'd like to um, explore right now. Um, well, maybe I could tell you a little bit about um, some of the research I'm doing at the moment. Um, yes, please. So one of, one of my questions, my research questions, is about this whole um, notion that psychedelics are in fact ecodelic. Um, mm. That what they do is they give people a profound um, sense of um, connectivity with nature. Um, the technical term for this, are you ready for this, is an extrovertive mystical experience. I'll say that again, <laughs> an extrovertive mystical experience. Excellent. And um, um, as I said earlier, you know, the anecdotal evidence is, is stacking up, but it's, it's anecdotal evidence. Mm-hmm. And um, in the study of religion, one of the, the great founders of the discipline um, was an American psychologist called William James. And mm. William James is famous in psychedelic circles because he wrote about um, mystical experience and, and the question of whether drugs could occasion mystical experiences. Um, but he was also um, quite a sceptic. And, and he says, um, just because you've had a mystical experience... It's, it's indubitably true for you, but I'm under no obligation whatsoever to believe you. Mm. And, and that, I think, is a, a great challenge because lots of people are saying, yeah, man, if we all just took magic mushrooms and, and beheld nature, then the world would be okay. And, and that's a very beguiling thought. Um, but how do we answer William James? And... Um, my kind of attempt to answer him has been to question how we view the self. And, um, I mean, I'll try and be brief, but um, in Western culture, we tend to have an idea of the self as um, atomistic, as rather Mm. like a a billiard ball. Um, It's it's the root um, idea behind the whole idea of uh, the economic person, you know, we are rational yes. individuals, we go and make rational choices in our purchases. There is a singular me or I within this self. Um, and and it has a sort of hard boundary. And we all kind of bounce around like billiard balls. Um, and then the problem is, if we're if, if that's what we're like, where does society come from? And yeah. I was reminded of Margaret Thatcher's um, uh, famous saying that there's no such thing as society. She could only say that because of this view of the self, that all that matters is the self uh, bouncing around like a billiard ball, making rational choices. Um, 
And, and that's, that's the idea of the self that we've inherited. Um, but there are other ideas of the self, and um, I'm not going to rattle through all of them for you now, but um, in indigenous cultures, um, the self is not necessarily a singular thing, nor does it necessarily have a hard, impermeable boundary. Mm. Um, the, um, we have multiple selves. We have um, um, pervious selves. And, and, and the, other, the other things that might be inside me are my ancestors, um, spirits, deities, um, the landscape... Now, this starts to sound a little bit weird to Western ears, but, I mean, just think... Um, well, this, this becomes particularly apparent when you, when you do become a parent and you mm. start re, um, rebuking your children with exactly the phrases that your parents used when you were a child that you'd completely forgotten about. And, and so, in some sense your parents are already inside you. And, and so the indigenous model, I think, isn't quite as weird as it first sounds. Or someone makes a very hurtful comment to you when you're a child at school, a teacher, say, that stays with you, it's in you, it's part of you, it's, it's residing within you. And, and the other key idea of um, this indigenous model is that you have to keep working at making yourself pervious, that the self kind of closes itself off like, um, like a, a sort of um, uh, a, a, a tortoise, you know, developing a kind of um, carapace about itself. And so the reason why you do ritual, why you do vigil, why you do fasting, why you do all those kind of ritual austerities, all night dancing, dancing till you drop... The reason why you do that is to maintain the perviousness of the self because everything is about community. Well, in that model, um, uh, it's really not surprising that there's connectivity with the other than human because mm. the whole worldview is, is premised on that. Um, so I, I think there are views of the self that would allow um, psychedelics... Um, to open us up profoundly to uh, nature connection and um, that what they do is they make us pervious they, make, they, they reduce this sort of um, carapace we build around ourselves and um, a profoundly anti-Thatcherite I never thought I'd say that they're profoundly anti-Thatcherite they get rid of this <laughs> sense of the of the atomistic individual they open us up to the possibility of living in community with um, the different aspects of myself but with other people and with the other than human and that if that is true I think is profoundly timely mm. I'm also reminded of the fact as you're talking about permeability and connection um, of some of the biggest challenging, uh, some of the biggest challenges that the Western world are facing around issues with depression, isolation, suicide, um, opioid crises. Right. I think these things, one can see a through line where, if people are feeling less connected and less supported, um, it's very easy for for us to get unwell um, and to suffer. And I wonder if 
um, sort of to inject a bit of levity into this in some way, but in other ways it's quite serious, I guess. Uh, I wonder if um, trends such as the Marie Kondo method of clearing out loads of stuff in your house, decluttering and then organising and cherishing that which you have. I wonder if these sorts of more public trends are reflecting a deeper desire for something richer but with less stuff and maybe just a sense of um, being in greater presence with what's there, with our loved ones, with our dwelling places, with with the, yeah, the, the, the ground beneath our feet in some instances. I know that that's... Um, an interesting trend that's happening with with storytelling and a return to folk tales that these are stories that reconnect us with place. I wonder what your experience and your research is is around that about there being a potential trend towards looking at these different forms of reconnection. Um, well, yes, I mean I, I completely agree with with what you just said. I mean I think uh, I'll come on to your question about um, uh, storytelling in just a moment, but mm. I think late capitalism has come to function like um, a non-theistic religion and um, it just says just keep buying stuff and you'll feel okay and and we know that you know the 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 brain's reward systems give us that dopamine hit when we (laughs) when we hit the buy now button and then the thing arrives and it lasts for all of a day and then we need another hit and I would say that going along with the ecological crisis is a, a huge crisis of meaning mm. that um, somewhere people know that capitalism is not answering <laughs> that need for meaning, that need for belonging. I mean, in a sense, I think capitalism, this is a, 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 bigger, a bigger debate, but I'm going to gloss over it if I may. <laughs> but I think capitalism emerged from Christianity. And I think somewhere Christianity, um, its popularity was that it gave this answer to our human condition, our mortality. Don't worry, as long as you're good, as long as you're moral, you'll have eternal life. And hmm. I don't, I, I really don't think people buy that. I'm not trying to be disrespectful to practicing or believing Christians. That's fine. But I think many people for whom Christianity no longer plays a part in their life, they don't buy that, but neither has capitalism answered it. Mm-hmm. And and then if you if you have some kind of crisis, you get ill, you get burnt out at work, um, you suffer a bereavement, um, you're in an accident, um, a partner leaves you, any of these kind of things throws you into some kind of crisis mm. and and you realise that the capitalist story isn't cutting it. Be- yes. you, you fall through the cracks. And, um, and, and so, yes, I think there is this profound hunger for meaning. Now, it's, it's fine if people find it in... Orthodox religion, and uh, please don't get me wrong, I, um, I'm not trying to criticise um, mainstream religion at all. Um, but but for for those for whom uh, those worldviews no longer have any meaning or relevance, what's left? So um, you you mentioned the revival of storytelling, and. Um, yeah, I, I think absolutely people are looking for something that can connect them to place, to where they are, and the community in which they live. Um, mm. I mean, many of us 
I, I'm I'm really bizarre in that I now live five miles from where I was born and grew up. I mean, I couldn't oh, wow. wait to get away when I was a kid, <laughs> but I've ended up I've ended up at home, and that's really weird. Most of us live far from where we grew up, um, mostly in urban environments where we probably don't even know our neighbours, um, mm. and we we assemble these kind of um, virtual communities through the yoga class we go to or um, work colleagues or people who share similar interests and and we're desperate for something that will link us to to place and um, I, I think that that search for storytelling festivals um, you know um, the whole kind of um, uh, hipster romanticization of moving back to the country and um, mm. idyllic childhoods and all those kind of folksy adverts we have at the moment with ukulele <laughs> soundtracks they're all symptoms <laughs> of this hunger for for reconnection to place and to community that capitalism late capitalism particularly has just severed it's curious because as you're saying that I'm getting this I suddenly have this image in my mind of um, someone dressing themselves up creating sort of a life made of the scraps of what they imagine that connection to look like so buying the house in the country or playing the ukulele like you just said and I find that when I search for the moments at which I felt most um, connected or enriched or alive often it's a very internal experience without external trappings um, that will usually involve dancing or playing music or being with um, loved ones or whatever it might be, but but these are they're sort of these are um, experiences that are generally interconnected with others, or if they're not, it's connected with sound or movement or story or rich imagination. And I I wonder if um, there's something in that that we kind of we so easily turn to an outside source for an inside change. Uh, and th that maybe that's also the role of capitalism to say, well, OK, you're not feeling great. Open your app. You're not feeling great. Buy more shit that you don't need. Mm. Um, as opposed to just going, you're not feeling great. Reach out a hand. Um, I know I'm simplifying to make a point, but I think there's something in that 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 maybe the hard stuff is turning inwards because there's so much that's been ignored that we'd have to clamber over a heck of a lot of stuff and probably through quite a lot of it to find the plug to connect ourselves back in. I think you're so right. And I, um, and I think the nature of urban living, you know, I was talking about perviousness of the self. I think the mm. nature of urban living, um, particularly in the big um, metropolises, um, you, you can't survive unless you have your armour and mm. um, uh, act as though you're a billiard ball, um, you know, sort of... It, it's intolerable. I mean, just travelling on the tube is insanity. Um, and people do this every day. They have to do it every day. But if you take one step back, it's insanity that you, you're stuffed into this tube underground with your head in someone's armpit, desperately trying not to make <laughs> eye contact with them in case they perceive it as some kind of unwelcome threat. And I mean, it's just monstrous. And and because of that, I think I think you're right. It is hard sometimes to uh, find those moments of connection. But 
you know, I, I would say that why are festivals so popular? Mm. Um, why does everybody want to go to festivals in the summer? Precisely for that, for that festival feeling, for that feeling of belonging, that feeling of mm. um, what anthropologists would call communitas, mm. that effervescent feeling of belonging, of being in a crowd amongst similar people, sharing moments around the fire, um, as you say, through dance, through, uh, through music, um, they're, they're sort of our safety valves, I think, really. Um, mm. What they haven't translated into is um, um, the tearing down of capitalism. <laughs> but maybe that will come. <laughs> yes, and I wonder, it's, it's ironic that we're actually paying for these experiences. Mm. Yeah. And that, that, that yeah. something which, in, in its most rich form, is is inherently participatory so things like singing I remember when I was very young so I'm, I'm also a musician I know you're also a musician um when mm. I was very young I had friends one friend in particular in primary school who was told that she couldn't sing and I never really bought into it and it was a lie and one of the teachers spent about a year and a half taking taking her through different songs different techniques and she by the end of it she could sing and when I say sing I mean you know conventionally sing in tune and hold hold a melody in a group of people and I think we forget when we pay for these experiences that actually these were meant to be things that we did together that we created together it wasn't necessarily a musician over there and everyone else sits and listens of course there's going to be people who are maestros and virtuosic on the violin or whatever but people could tap a foot or, or clap a hand or hum, hum along and I think um, we're, we're almost discouraged to partake in that way in many societies now Yeah I agree and I, I, music is one of those um, those fundamental things that make us human and um, mm. you know you go to uh, an indigenous African context and everybody sings there is no music making mm. without everyone. Um, and you're right, you know, some mm. people are particularly gifted, but it's something you do together. And and there's no question that you wouldn't sing or dance. And yeah. Um, yeah. just as there's all this research being done on the um, potential benefits of psychedelics, there's just a ton of research about the therapeutic effects of music making and um, what mm. what music making does to the brain, which is why music and psychedelics have always traditionally gone together. And um, I'm thinking particularly of um, West Africa and the Bawiti um, religion in Gabon, where they have some of the most uh, rhythmically mm. complex music on earth, um, which is designed to express and at the same time contour and shape the experience of taking iboga, which is this root bark, um, wow. uh, which is the mainstay of, of their religion. But you, you can't separate the iboga from the religion, from the music. They're, they're, mm. they're entangled. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, that we were talking, you, you asked ages ago, actually, about... Um, <laughs> about the type of experiences that people are having outside of the clinic or outside of the laboratory. And and yes. here, here's where I think it, something interesting is happening, that I think people are now trying to st- start to find 
ritual or ritual-like or ceremonial context for taking, say, magic mushrooms. Mm. Um, a lot of this has come from people traveling to the Americas and taking part in ayahuasca ceremonies or peyote ceremonies or mm. San Pedro ceremonies. But people are now starting to come home and go, well, you know, we can't keep jetting off to the Amazon. Um, what would an indigenous mushroom yes. ceremony look like? What would the music be like that... <laughs> contours it and expresses it and gives shape to it mm. um, and these are fascinating questions it's interesting because when we talk about um, ritual contexts for the taking of psychedelic plants and the experiencing of these um, I guess these moments of connectedness or dissolution of self any of these experiences we often look to other indigenous traditions who have some kind of lineages some kind of lineage that remains unbroken. And yet we forget that in our own backyard, we have great long lineages of our own indigenous traditions that, yes, um, may have been cut by the invasions of the Romans and then Christian um, and uh, Abrahamic religions taking root and displacing many of the more earth-based practices. But if we go far enough back, and we don't have to go that far, you find the threads of these old stories still woven and alive in places today. Um, and I wonder what your thoughts are about, about tapping into these rituals that belong to all of humanity, that somehow there is um, a thread that we can pull on no matter how diverse our backgrounds. So, for instance, my family comes from all sorts of continents. No matter how diverse and how maybe disconnected to place or to a lineage you may feel that, that there is um, a connection that we each share with some form of ecological connectedness and narrative that connects us back in I don't, that was quite a long mm. sentence I'm not sure no, I'm, I'm being clear enough no you're making sense I mean um, so one of my long-term personal interests is in paganism i call myself a pagan mm. and um i've i've been searching for exactly that you know what, what are the threads what are the traces what are the the shards the remnants of of um ancient ritual and practice and um mm. sadly <laughs> they're very hard to find and mm. as i've got older i've I've started to think it doesn't matter um, hmm. in that it's, it's easy to think that authenticity lies somewhere else. It lies in the Amazon. So it true. lies in the distant past, in the Iron Age or in the Neolithic or um, anywhere but here. And, and what humans have always done is make stuff up. <laughs> and... Um, mm. If you get it right, you make something up and you get it right and you do it again the same time next year or the same time next month or whenever it is and it still feels right. Before you know it, you've got a tradition. And mm. um, I, I, I'm so sympathetic to that hunger for authenticity in the past and, it, mm. it uh, you know, I play English bagpipes that were wiped out in the Reformation and I played Dark Age Liar which disappeared in about <laughs> 700 AD I played these instruments that no one really knows how they sounded and yeah. I have this desperate hunger to connect to something ancient and yet 
it probably doesn't matter. So we can we can devise our own rituals, and it that might mean going to Glastonbury, and and taking LSD for three days, perhaps. <laughs> it might mean gathering at the summer solstice on a hilltop round a fire with your friends and playing music and staying up all night and watching the sunrise and that's mm. enough you don't you don't need a guy with a funny hat and a rattle um <laughs> though that can help too you know we can we can be creative here and we can make our own rituals it may be that uh, you know um uh the psychiatric clinic is the new ritual space, you know, the, the psychiatrists are our new shamans. And when you look at the research that's being done at Imperial about treating people for depression, um, they turn a bog standard, horrendous um, uh, hospital bedroom into this beautiful psychedelic cave of wonders with an extraordinary <laughs> soundtrack. And they lull people, they take people on a psychedelic journey. Maybe that's mm. something of a new ritual. Um, I would I would hate to be prescriptive. Um, I'm I'm really intrigued to see what our new rituals are. Um, so, for example, uh, look at look at the rave, um, which emerged mm. in the late 1980s and has remarkable longe- longevity. That it hasn't really changed. You know, you've got a DJ, uh, you've got music, you've got lots of beautiful decor. People dress in a very particular way. Um, you take particular drugs. You don't take other drugs. Um, that's a kind of ritual that's emerged. It works. It functions for a lot of people. Um, not sure it's so great for mushrooms. But what what would a mushroom ceremony look like? People are starting to experiment and to explore, and and I think something new can evoke the spirit of the old without being hidebound to the past or hidebound to tradition. Because there's a lot about tradition that we don't want to keep. Um, yes. There's a, lot, there's a lot of aspects of human culture that have a venerable history like rape, genocide, homophobia, mm. empire. All these things go way back. We don't need them, you know. So it's great if you can find something that's old that will support and hold you and and provide that container. At the same time, we don't necessarily need it. And I think it does come down to what you were saying about connection, um, open-heartedness, reaching out a hand to people. Maybe that's enough. Oh, that's very um, inspiring. I love this idea of... of, There's something, a phrase in particular that you used where you said that... um, Kind of what we're looking for is anywhere but here and this sense that because i'm totally guilty of this you know reading old books about different forms of rituals through different lineages throughout the ages whether it's zoroastrianism or whatever it might be um mm. but someone had to make this shit up at some point like someone said right. okay let's try this let's light a fire um rattle something that makes sound and move around and see what happens and it's maybe that's the thing that is worth keeping it's the spirit of experimentation and play you mentioned earlier about your children being open maybe that's the thing that is the timeless thing that all of humanity and i would probably also say probably most if not all species have in common is this ability to explore something new (laughs) Mm. um and maybe that's the thing 
that is the thread that needs to be pulled upon in order to discover how to make the most of this in, in this present day and age. Um, and I wonder with, so there's, there's a wonderful word that you, that you offered in the talk that you gave, and I'm sure you probably offered it before, but that was the first time I encountered it, um, which is anemophony. Or I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. How would you pronounce it? I, I would say anemophony. Um, yes. It, it's, it's, a, it's a really tortured um, new word because it, <laughs> classical scholars will see that I've hammered together Latin and Greek. I'm so sorry. Excellent. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a play on the idea of hierophany, um, which is a concept within the study of religion, and that means mm. a manifestation of the sacred. Mm. And um, what, I, what I mean by anemophony is that one of the experiences that people report, particularly on mushrooms and ayahuasca and uh, iboga, um, is, that, is this manifestation of spirits. Mm. Um, now, that might be um, plant spirits, and that seems to happen particularly on ayahuasca, that... Um, Plants seem to appear often in human guise and in um, in indigenous cosmovision, they are recognisable. Um, so there will be consensual agreement that if um, a woman turns up, a young woman with black hair and she's holding uh, a, a stem of a plant cut in a certain way, then that means it's black datura or whatever. Mm. Um, so there's a, there seems to be some kind of agreement that these are genuine plant spirits. We're getting mm. into um, territory that might um, be hard for Westerners to uh, credit. But So there's a manifestation of a spirit. But I also mean it. there's an, a, a new understanding of... Um, a term again from the study of religion called animism. The old Victorian understanding of animism was that um, indigenous people just kind of made a well-intentioned mistake and they misattribute aliveness or insoldness to things that to the Western mind are probably not alive, mm. like trees and rocks and mountains and rivers, landscapes, caves springs these kind of things to to the western mind that it's very obvious that's not alive we make a very clear distinction between aliveness and not aliveness mm. that was the old idea of animism there's a new idea of animism um, that comes through the work of a american anthropologist called irving hallowell who was working in the 1950s uh, amongst the ojibwe nation uh, in North America, in Turtle Island. Mm. And they had this concept of other than human persons, by which they mean the world is full of people, only some of whom are human. Mm. So there may be rock people and tree people and mountain people and river people, which is not to say that they are human people in rock form. <laughs> no. A rock person behaves as a rock person should, i.e. like a rock. The difference is that it, it means you live in a world of relationships yes. where suddenly now there are correct ways to interact with all these different people with whom you happen to coexist. It goes back to this idea of perviousness mm. again and the idea of the self being multiple. And 
And so when I coined the phrase, uh, the term anamathony, I meant it in that sense, that people often see the aliveness of the world and that it does have personhood. Mm. And, and people report that certain rocks, for example, seem to be alive or conscious in some way or seem to have some kind of personhood, seem to be demanding some rockish way of interacting with them. As I mentioned earlier, um, the, the current scientific research isn't particularly interested in this. Um, it would describe it as being, well, that's psychologically true. Um, or they might use the word magical thinking, which is a beautiful way of consigning it to um, a kind of ontological bin where you don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> um, but, but I think that's one of the most interesting things about psychedelics is... We've moved away from this language of psychology, which was predominant in, in the 60s, um, ego expansion or ego loss or mind expansion or expanding consciousness, all these kind of psychological terms. And now people are starting to talk about um, relationship with spirits, relationship with trees and plants and rocks and rivers. Mm. And, and that, I felt, deserved a, a new word hence animaphony, a manifestation of spirit. That's a really lovely way to um, to point towards it. And I wonder, before I ask you the final question, um, I wonder what role you think this might play in how we deal with um, the difficulties of the climate breakdown and um, the degradation of nature, this, this, this reframing of our experiences to encompass more than just ego dissolution, for example, or this desire to be more connected, our sense of wanting to have um, a greater sense of connection with the web of life of which you form a part. Well, I think, I think in the 80s and 90s, um, people were encouraging us to connect with Gaia, with the planet, with the globe. And I think that's too much for a human mind to take in. I don't think we can... We, the, it's one of the problems with climate breakdown is it's, it's so huge. Mm. It, it, it's beyond us. And therefore, I think one way forward is to foster, as you were suggesting earlier, with your talking about folk tales, is, is to foster an intimate connection with place, with where you are with with your locality and it and that really doesn't matter where you are you can be right in the middle of london or berlin or new york and you can still foster a connection with place you can spot the moss and the lichen and the birds that live there you can create a relationship with them and once you have an animistic relationship in that you start treating them as other than human people people with whom you share the world, then you start to care about them. And there are numerous studies that show when people are invested in the world about them, when they care, they won't let people just chop down a tree. You know, they'll go and squat in the tree and stop you cutting it down because in some sense it's become meaningful, in some sense it's become sacred. So, I mean, I'm incredibly privileged where I live down here at Schumacher College um, in Dartington in Devon, there's a 1,500-year-old yew tree at the top oh, of the hill. Wow. And it has this palpable presence. And, and I can go and just 
you know, set with this ancient being <laughs> that's enormous and it dwarfs me both in <laughs> stature and in longevity. I mean, I, I can't even conceive of what it would be like to live for 100 years, let alone 1,500 years. Mm. But I know that if anyone was going to take an axe to it, I have this relationship with that tree and I would, I would stop them. Now, if we can... It, you don't need a 1,500-year-old yew uh, tree. You can, you can do it with whatever is in your locality. Um, if you can open your eyes to what's there, to the pigeons, to the magpies, the rooks, the, the rats even, these uh, other creatures, these other beings that we're sharing our world with, if we can foster a relationship of care, then I think that will help steer us through because then, then we're invested. Then then we're in this. Well, I was going to finish by asking um, what one insight or advice might you offer to people listening? Um, and you've kind of moved into that direction anyway, but if there was one entry point that you could offer people to help do what you've just expressed, so to rekindle this sense of care and connection with the place wherever they are right now, what might that be if there was something they could, they could do to open that door? Well, one, I mean, you don't have to take psychedelics. <laughs> but if you do, you know, do it safely, do your research, know what you're taking, speak to people who've done it before, um, pay attention to your mental health, both before and after, um, and pay attention to what the experience is going to show you and do it in a safe environment. You know, take care. But you don't have to take psychedelics. You can You can forge a relationship with place by... Um, what we call sit spots so you find a spot where you're comfortable sitting and you go back to it and you go back to it and if you can go back at different times of the day and night if that's safe for you if that's if that's possible and I appreciate that's not possible for everyone and you just go and sit and you go and pay attention mm -hmm. and you notice what's there and you notice the different feelings at different times of day and what's happening and how it makes you feel I think all of this comes down to paying attention mm. to a quality of what I would call active receptivity mm. or there's another fancy word, auscultation, <laughs> um, which is actually a medical term, but it, it, means, it means really listening actively. So listening is a kind of wider metaphor. I don't just mean listening with your ears, but really paying attention to what, what you're beholding, what is being presented to you. And if you do that, I mean, just do it for a week. And, and I promise you, um, you'll start to forge a relationship with, with place. I know someone who, when his colleagues at work, and he was working in the city in London, when they used to go out for a cigarette, he would just nip out to his sit spot. And it might just be a, a soot-tarnished tree um, in the street. But it's enough. Um, do that and it will pay dividends and, and you will start to feel a new sense of connection to place and a new sense of care and you'll notice when climate change is starting to bite because you'll notice that it's weird like these weird hot late autumns we've been having I know they feel weird to me I, I, I know this in an intellectual way but they feel I feel it in my in my chest, in my stomach. They feel weird. Um, when you've got that 
attention and you'll notice and you, you'll be invested and you'll care. And you'll feel like you belong. Mm. Which is actually the thing that I think we most need right now. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much. You've given me so much of your time. Um, I really, really enjoyed listening to you. <laughs> uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've um, thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina High. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag Hive Podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.